1: There is no right answer because everybody' circumstances are different and you'll find in the marketplace there are varying answers.
0: This is the Think Big Property Podcast where young earns millions from property development and Tyrone, that's me, has millions of questions. In this episode, we're going to be talking about money rules, the rules you should have when it comes to ensuring that you're investing your money wisely. We talk about the difference between good debt and bad debt, what your worst case scenario should be going into any deal and much, much more. In this episode, Young and I discuss about money rules which is a key foundational principle to enable you to set boundaries and manage your money in the best possible way. I
1: love money rules because it's what I live and breathe by. And I know that uh, some people don't even know what money rules are. And I know that's going to be our intention today to explain to people what the two words money rules mean but yeah, no, I live and breathe it and it makes my, work, my life work well.
0: Let's share with the audience what are the money rules because these are kind of the foundations of what we look at as property developers.
1: What makes a good developer and a person who can make money ongoingly when we're talking about money rules is firstly, why do we have money rules, where do they come from, why aren't we taught them? At school, um, I actually got this concept from a guy named John Burley. Um, John Burley is an educator from America. He came, I think, in the late 90s and early 2000s with Robbie Kiyosaki, with the, the powwow guys. And um, he, he brought this concept up. He's got some really good frameworks. Um, I don't know what he's up to now, but he's got a little really, really good frameworks on how to think about money and how to think about how that integrates into property. So Um, oftentimes you know if we're playing a sport whether it's tennis soccer football that this particular weekend there's a lot of football on if we don't have rules one how do you know that you're winning how do you know that you're losing how do you know that where the boundaries are you know when you've got kids when you've got businesses when you've got relationships you need boundaries and money rules is not something that's taught in school so when when people make a lot of money They don't necessarily know where the boundaries are, how to spend it, how to manage things like tax, how to manage things like saving, how to manage things like um, future opportunities, compound interest.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a good example when you think about it. People who win the lottery is a good example. You know, you hear stories about people winning millions and millions of dollars and then later in life, maybe 5, 10 years down the track, they've lost everything and you go wow they've got so much money and they had all that opportunity to do whatever they wanted to do with it but then they they come back to the, the I guess the starting point of where they won that money and I've read stories online where this young girl at the age of 20-something, she was in the windfall of like 12 or 15 million dollars and she said it was the worst thing ever in her life to actually be given that much money because she one, she didn't know what to do with it and two, people around her just thought, oh yeah, she doesn't know what to do so let's just come and ask her for the money. She ended up just giving it away and then it got to a point where she just lost everything and I, I don't think she had any money rules because at that young age, no one teaches her that those things. So it's it's actually really really important to look at it because just as you said, in life, not just for money, but in relationships, in work, in whatever you do, there are actually boundaries and rules that are involved. And I think this is really really important why we should be talking about it today, and you know, it just really really helps us. Another great example is. Um, Fast cars, and I, I know how much you love your cars, Young. Maybe you want to share with us the example of why money, having money rules or money management, is so important. Just like a fast car,
1: creating wealth, and I know that this podcast is primarily about property investing and property development and creating wealth. I think it's very important that we talk about money rules because. Um, i can teach people how to make money it's actually not difficult you know going from 50 grand 100 grand 500 grand if you think about that it, it like a vehicle or a car you're going faster and faster and faster and essentially uh, like a motorbike you know, I, I often see the motorbikes on the road um, and motorbikes with the power to weight ratio which means that they have uh, they're very, very light and they've got a fair bit of power on them. They can go very, very fast. But the motorbike is one of the most dangerous vehicles on the road. I'd love, I'd love to have a motorbike. I've actually got a helmet I bought. I've got a license. But the fear of dying um, is the reality check of why um, I don't have a motorbike. And I agree that my wife wouldn't approve it either because obviously we don't want to put ourselves at risk. to say that i'm negative on motorbikes it's just the risk i'm not willing to take but my point is that property wealth creation we have leverage and we go faster we can go faster and faster and if you don't do it right you can uh, essentially hurt yourself by going bankruptcy uh, going bankrupt or or losing money and um yeah that's why uh, i believe in in money rules is looking at what are money rules how should you set them up what are the couple of considerations Um, because it is such a big topic. And and where I've gone to learn from that is I've studied very, very wealthy people. Um, In my book, From Broke to Billionaire, I've studied wealthy people and gone, okay, what are their principles? Uh, How have they made money in good markets? Have they made money in bad markets? Because essentially at the end of the day, you are leveraging yourself and money rules keeps you safe. It keeps you sane. It keeps you financially healthy in good times and in bad times. And that's really what you want to do.
0: Let's talk a little bit about perhaps maybe what are probably the, the money rules that you have in place or you would recommend to take a look at.
1: We've got a handful of principles about money rules. and We can go through a few of them uh, for those listeners there. If obviously if you're driving, you won't be able to write this down. But if you're you know on the train or you're listening to this and you're sitting in front of your, your computer, you might want to write down a couple of these answers to these questions uh, to help you on your journey. Um, if you can't, you can always listen to it a little bit later and, and re-participate in these questions. Um, and, and look, don't be too concerned if you don't have the answers to these questions. It is, there is no right answer, and everything is a process. So, your rules will change. Uh, Some of the answers to these questions will definitely change over time as you build more confidence, build your skill set, encounter different situations, uh, whether it's a one into two subdivision or a buy, rent, or sell. There are so many nuances in this uh, and everybody's got their personal risk profile as well. So, one of the questions I often ask my clients is, how much money are you willing to invest? How much money are you willing to invest? And that, that might be you know, the capital that you have or the self-managed super fund that you've got or, or the capital that you have just right now as part of your resources. So um, yeah, some people might have little, might, some people might have a lot. Uh, some people might be able to invest 50 grand right now. Some people might have to wait until their super um, turns over and they can over- Uh, invest 200 grand so the amount of money is an important one and and then this next question is how much time you know how much time are you willing to invest some people want to quit their job straight away but they're too time poor they might be a dentist doctor or they work uh, and have to travel two hours each way um, and they cannot just invest any time whatsoever they've got busy lifestyles look after the kids as well so I think it's just also a reality check, looking at uh, how much time you're willing to invest. And then people often ask me how, what is a good amount of time? What is enough? And, and I say to people, look, when I started, I was doing probably, you know, one Saturday a week. Uh, I was single at the time, no kids, uh, very little responsibilities. One Saturday a week was my ideal scenario uh, at work before, during, so before work, at lunchtime and after work, I jump on the phone and, and ring agents as well. So we do have nooks and, and crannies um, of time.
0: So far, it's it's really, really important to understand that these are sort of the main key components that I think, you know, for anyone who's actually working full time and also, I guess, time poor slash also um, money poor then they need to ask how much time can you actually put into this and then as we talked about in one of our last episodes is about raising funds. You know, you don't necessarily need to have your own money but you can figure out how you can actually work with people to bring money in and that kind of asks you, these questions really, really start stimulating. So, I think we're on a really, really good track here.
1: And that's the thing, it's just a start just to not stop you but Get some facts, right? Like how much money you're willing to invest. That's just a start. If you're saying, "Look, I've got no money and I need to find investors," okay, cool. That's where you're at. And then your education, your journey will basically go from there. And time, you know, if you don't have a lot of time, you need to find ways to to leverage time. Because uh, that's where I started. I was working a full time job for first three years before you know I, I was able to quit my job. But I used my time wisely oftentimes we lose a lot of time wasting our time doing things that are frivolous or you can do things more efficiently you know I remember every time I jumped in the car one of my principles was when I jump in the car I need to get on the phone and, and ring somebody uh, and use that travel time or commuting time the best possible um, outcome you know so uh, the other question we we have or I like to think about is what's a minimum return on investment? Right, what's the minimum return on the investment? If you're throwing money in the bank and it's just general bank interest, we're talking 2% per annum or less, which is very, very low. Um, and, and I think we've talked about the last podcast, you've got a million bucks at 2%, that's barely 20 grand a year and that's less than 2 grand a month. And that money, you know, in, in my personal circumstance, I, I can make money work very, very, very hard. We're talking minimum 20, 50, maybe even 100% cash on cash return. But that comes with skill and experience as well. So with people I know who are investing potentially with you there, Tyrone, you, know, you offer an interest rate and it's a balance between return on investment as well as return of investment and time frame and risks and things like
0: that, right? It's really, really interesting that we look at it that way because I guess it depends on who or your mindset as well to what you think you could actually do as well and it depends on your risk profile because as you said, it's a skill that you've got to develop and when you're first starting off, everyone you know has the dream to getting like 100% return, 200% return but what are the risks involved in being able to achieve that kind of return and also how to structure that safely so that you do get that kind of return because it's it's definitely possible. There's so many deals out there that I've seen and I'm pretty sure you've seen as well too that offer those kind of higher returns but how much time, how much money and how much skill will you need to actually put into it to structure these deals to get that kind of return?
1: And that's why I love development because it allows you to leverage instead of doing just a one into two, you could do a one into 10, one into 30 but it takes organic growth and it takes that skill and experience. I'm very much an active investor in, in terms of I'm not necessarily on the tools, painting or um, gurning the, the ground or the concrete. When I mean active as in I'm very much aggressive in my strategies, I want the best return possible in the shortest period of time because it not only protects me, it protects my investors and it secures the exit paying the banks back as well. So return on investment is very much uh, something that you need to consider and look at okay, what are the parameters of the deal not just the return on the investment but also the return of the investment uh, and exit strategies because oftentimes people can paint a very, very glossy or beautiful photo, sexy photo of what picture of, of what is possible but that it's part of your understanding of the deal and uh, assessment of the deal and execution of the deal in the current market as well.
0: I totally agree. So, let's take a look at other types of deals.
1: So, I, I know a lot of people when they start out. Uh, and it's a great place to start is is doing renos.
0: Growing up, I was involved quite a lot heavily with my father's properties that um, he was renovating. He'd always get me to do hands-on. And this is the difference is being a property developer it doesn't necessarily mean that you hands-on the tools as you mentioned which is getting the paintbrush and painting the walls, drilling holes in the walls, putting stuff up there. I have learned at a very young age not to necessarily want to do that again <laughs> <laughs> it's, Good, quite, it? it's quite quite labor intensive. I used to have to lift yeah. up all the soil from the front that the the, the oh, would right. deliver and put it into the gardens and oh my yes. gosh <laughs> yeah yes. I was much younger luckily, that was when I was a teenager and doing that, and I had a lot more energy. Yes. But yeah at my age. Not saying that I'm Your too age, old. What? <laughs> You're twenty five, aren't you? You barely
1: started shaving mate. What are you talking about?
0: Come on. Yeah, that's that's the Asian genie in us. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. That's right.
0: Um, I, I don't see myself picking up those kind of tools and I think what I've learned is with property development it's it's a skill to be able to put all these things together, working with trades, working with project managers, putting together the finance, it's it's actually something that is very, very important to be able to understand how that all works and fits together. So I mean coming back to what I was saying, Renault's and, and and that those kind of cosmetic things, it's basically just a little quick makeover inside from what, what I've I've done in the past as well. It's you're not literally literally structuring or moving rooms or creating new rooms inside a place. You're basically just doing a makeover of a, a you could either be painting the walls, you might, you know, pull out some of the kitchen cupboards and replace them with new cupboards if they're warm, new handles. Those like very, very little minor things which won't cost too much and won't cost too much time and hopefully it will increase the value of your property in a very, very, very short space of time. And on top of that when, when buyers come through like potentially owner occupies it has a better stronger appeal because they're wanting to move into something that's already been done already for them all they have to do is move in put the furniture and start living rather than have to spend their own time and effort to actually renovate themselves and that can add quite a quite a substantial value if done correctly as well too
1: and look that that's This question here what kind of deals are you comfortable doing as part of the money rules it's just a bit of self-awareness of what you're up to what your skill set that you have Uh, we've got clients who do renos full-time and what i mean by that is they might turn over you know five eight properties a year buy reno sell or buy under market value do a cosmetic or a structural reno on it and flip it and make 50 80 100 grand Um, and a good start with cosmetic renos or structural renos if you're doing that it's a very very Good platform to get into small developments. So you might do a one into two where you it might the house might be on a corner. Keep the house, subdivide the back block off, and, and renovate the house, and, and you know get what you call a free block of land. So my point is that these questions are just about uh, awareness. Um, some people like um, more uh, complicated deals like uh, strata titling, bigger subdivisions, commercial property, uh, lifting houses. Um, structural renovations there's so many different types of deals and we're not going to go into it but over the next course of the next few weeks and months of the podcast we'll look at different strategies and reveal the strengths and weaknesses of each because every one of them has a different uh, opportunities depending on the resources that you have the energy that you have and and, the skill sets and and passions as well because i know love some people they love the, the renovation concept of making things look pretty right? Uh, whereas some of my other clients, their creativity comes in a 20 ton excavator, which comes in and just knocks it down and they've got two rectangles. Yeah. So, uh, and I don't exaggerate, but that that's, people have different forms of creativity and depends on what you're looking for. Are you looking for a creative outlet? And or are you just looking to make uh, money through property? So it's a balance of both and I have a creative outlet as well. It's probably more squeezing the most out of a smaller block of land, get the most bang for buck but at the same time, having a product that the market really wants as well.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll delve into understanding debt,
1: it's all well and good to say, oh, you can get a $5, $10 million loan but there's a, there are responsibilities with that.
0: The time Nguyen opted to buy a car rather than a property that would have over time doubled in value.
1: My first Mercedes that I bought, um, I bought it on debt and it was very, very challenging because um, my point is that it depreciated in value and then the debt or what I owed on it was more than what it was
0: worth. The worst case scenario for Nung.
1: So the worst case scenario needs to be at least the investors get their money back the interest paid the bank paid back and you breaking even
0: that's next and you're listening to the Think Big Property podcast Hey podcast listeners Want to learn how Nyung made over $215,000 from subdividing a thousand meter square block into five lots? Many told him there are no good deals left in this suburb but $215,000 profit in 12 months proved them wrong. When you head over to thinkbigproperty.com and subscribe, you'll get access to the video that shows you where to find them, how to get them approved and how to profit from them in even overpriced suburbs. This video shows you everything simply visit thinkbigproperty.com to watch the video. I think the good thing about property development and that's what I think a lot of people don't realize is that there is that creative aspect that you can put input into it. It's not necessarily just looking for the money and, and getting a profit out of each deal. It's actually problem solving as we've kind of discussed in the last episode and using your creative Output to be able to generate something that's going to, you know, be value for everyone. Especially for, I guess, um, the buyers that are looking in the market. In, in your last instance or your last uh, example that you shared with us about a duplex on the back of a block of six hundred which is phenomenal to be able to squeeze that much in. I mean, in in Sydney, where I live, to get a duplex on a 600 square meter block is almost impossible because they don't usually do that very much around here. Even the, the biggest block that we've seen around here is about 400 square meters. So... That is just problem solving to its max to be able to get that and also make a profit from that too.
1: That's the things I love to do on, on free blocks of land and create opportunities where other people don't see it and that's where the, the opportunity is one uh, financially for people to be able to create extra sources of income. I'm a big believer in free blocks of land but also multiple sources of income. So keeping that house and adding an extra two dwellings at the back, that's a one into three in terms of rental incomes as well. So rather than just having one tenancy, you've got three and that creates a reduce, uh, massive reduction in uh, risk because if, let's say, from a rental point of view, if one of the tenants move out, then I've still got two rents coming in. And, and that's a big part of what I learned, you know, pre-GFC and post-GFC as well as multiple sources of income is, is very, very powerful and it's important when you're doing deals and growing because, the next question we're talking about is, is debt and then how much you're okay with and it's all well and good to say oh you can get a five ten million dollar loan but there's are there are responsibilities with that and and i think that's one thing that people need to get clear on is how much debt are you okay with how much debt are you comfortably handling and not just getting the loan but making the repayments on a weekly monthly basis um you know, i remember one stage during the GFC um, or pre-GFC, I had uh, some house and land packages or properties that we've, we've actually built and the repayments cumulatively amongst a handful of properties, there was about 20 grand a month. And so, this was you know 10 years ago and it was a very, very stressful time. So, um, even though these days I can handle that in stronger and, and bigger, but it's just one of those things is getting a reality check on how much leverage are you comfortable with because it's not about you know bigger is better. Like we said previously, it's about think big, start small and grow organically.
0: It's really interesting that you mentioned that especially when you're talking about the example pre and also after GFC as well. I think what's important is as you said, if you were having debt like $20,000 per month, you've got to be able to make sure that one, your income that you've got there and usually with property development, there's usually not much income coming out. You've got to be able to cover that expense because at the end of the day, if you can't 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 repay that, then the banks come knocking your door and say, look, you know, what's going on there? So it's it's also that aspect as well. Um, (laughs) I think it comes back down to mindset as well that we're talking about that if you're not comfortable with debt, you've got to actually work on that aspect first and that's why as we sort of said, 70% of it is psychology and the mindset behind all this and you've got to work on that aspect to be comfortable with it if you're going to take your step from thinking big to, you know, starting small. I I think it's important definitely to also take considerations about what type of debt you want to be taking on because obviously, if you're going to take on debt, that's going to be um, good debt, you know, good versus bad debt which Rich Dad, Poor Dad talks about. You've got to understand which is good debt and which is bad debt as well. Maybe maybe we could elaborate on that and, and sort of share with the audience what the differences are between the two.
1: Essentially, at the end of the day, debt is debt. You owe people money. You know, If you're buying a car and you're using debt to pay for it, you're borrowing money and you're going to pay interest plus the money back versus, let's say, buying a property, investment property that's positively geared or even negatively geared. So I suppose the principles that Robert Kiyosaki talks about in terms of good debt and bad debt is bad debt that debt that's costing you money versus good debt that's making you money. So, if you've got a property that is making you positive cash flow or it's a development that you're able to capitalize, sell the land down or sell the townhouses down and make profit from it, you're using that debt to your advantage so versus buying a big fat tv or a boat with debt Uh, i bought cars in the past i remember my first mercedes that i bought um, i bought it on debt and it was very very challenging because my point is that it depreciated in value and then the debt or what i owed on it was more than what it was worth so post gfc I had trouble selling the car or I couldn't sell the car because it owed more than what the car was worth. So these days I don't pay. Uh, so I pay cash for cars and boats and things like that because we're able to, but sometimes when you're young and I wouldn't say uh, stupid, but maybe a bit more aggressive or you just want instant gratification that you, you do that. And, and so you know, I know you can potentially uh, use that as a tax deduction in some circumstances. However, my point is that, yeah, You won't really want to be using debt ideally to um, generate income. Um, Sometimes it's not possible though, you know, when you're buying your first house to live in, um, what I like to do is in the house even we're living in now, uh, we extended it. We had a, a granny flat put in as well and we had a tenant in there to uh, pay or, or fund that uh, debt or that extension of that place um, to, to pay for that extension. And my wife was uh, more than agreeable to that. It took us probably two years of negotiating to get that through. But uh, the tenant was there for, for four years and, yeah, it was really, really good uh, during that time. And so he's moved out and, and now we are taking that space back But coming back to the question is yeah, using debt to grow income versus um, using debt on depreciable items which don't generate you any money.
0: Thinking about this further, we all should be asking ourselves what's the worst case scenario that you'd be willing to take? So I think the next question we've got here is what's the worst case scenario that you'd be willing to take?
1: with the finance market the way it is deals generally taking longer because people are taking longer to get the finance approved Um, doesn't mean that people aren't keen to buy necessarily it depends on the marketplace of course but people need more time to be able to get finance approved and you need to factor that in so the worst case scenario needs to be at least the investors get their money back the interest paid the bank paid back and you breaking even so I really don't even like to consider that I remember when I started that that's the worst case scenario: everybody breaking even but these days I really want uh, focus on my deals, worst case scenario, I'm making at least 10, 15% profit, even in a potential GFC scenario, right? Because you, you really don't want to be practicing these things. I know when people start you out, they go, oh, I just want the experience. I want to build some houses to learn what it feels like. Well, I get it. And I've been there as well. I've built a lot of houses as a developer. Um, and, and it's good, good for your ego. You know, you build some stuff, it looks pretty, it looks big, you can show it off to your friends excuse me, at the barbecue, oh, this is my new house that I'm building. Oh, you're living in it? No, no, it's just an investment property So, because that in some ways inflates your ego and shows how much money you have or don't have. Um, But worst case scenario needs to be, yeah, really worst case breaking even but I've changed my benchmarks to at least making 10% uh, profit on my deals in a worst case, the world falls over uh, type scenario.
0: That's a really good important point I think you've raised there because if you actually went through and did the whole exercise and developments can take anywhere between 12 to 18 to 24 months and at the end of that development and you come back and say break even, you've wasted pretty much 18, 24 months of your life putting together a deal that is not profitable. And I, I don't think I'd be happy with myself to do that because the, the thing is is that you've also got... Lost opportunity too when you could actually just purchase a property that it could be a buy and hold and would have got maybe even a 5% return. So I think, as you said, you know, minimum should be at least 10 to 15%, which is, I think, a great result to start off with a worst case. Then when you're going for the best case scenario, you obviously be looking at anything between 25 to 40 to 50%. If you can get more, that's even better. You know, that'd be the cream on top. So there's got to be some, I guess, a point where you just got to ask yourself, is it really, really worth doing it? If it isn't, that's a good money rule to have in place and then move on to the next one because otherwise it's too e- easy to see all the shiny objects and go, okay, that deal looks amazing, but is it actually going to return the, the kind of return that I'm looking for? And I think what we've covered on this aspect, this worst case scenario, is so, so important.
1: If we're going to delve into it a little bit more and coming back to even the minimum return on investment, oftentimes people confuse the minimum return on investment to what I call like an absolute value. And this is kind of showing my um, maths uh, wording or terminology. I'm doing a bit of Tutoring for my daughter at the moment. And for those of you who may not understand the word absolute value, in short, it's like a versus rather than a percentage, it's it's an amount. So people's oftentimes, one of the mistakes that they'll they'll make is I look at, oh, I'm doing a deal and I'll make 50 grand and they're earning 100 grand at their job. Going, Great, I buy, rent, I sell this property and I'll make 50 grand or I'll subdivide this, I'll make 50 grand and six months' wages that I'm doing part time. Really happy with it. But here's the thing: is you really got to compare it to the amount of risk that you're taking on as well. It might if it's taking you, you know, eight hundred grand to make that fifty grand uh, return. That that's a fair amount of risk. So I think you know maybe down the track we'll talk about in our uh, podcast you know weighing risk, assessing risk. Why making 50 grand on a deal just may not be enough, depending on how big the deal is, how long it takes, what kind of risk factors are involved.
0: And that's the interesting part that you've kind of raised is that, say for example, on average properties across say Queensland and so forth could be around about say 500, 600 thousand at least. And because of that, if you make 50 thousand on that, that's only like a 10 percent return. So you've got to actually, as you said, weigh up the risks on how much you're willing to put into a property but also too at the same time, how much you're going to return back on the property as well too and that's that's really, really important which I think we definitely should be covering in a future topic too.
1: And I know for some of these questions, you might think, well, what is the right answer? (laughs) I'm sorry but yeah, there is no right answer because... Everybody, circumstances are different and you'll find in the marketplace, there are varying answers. If you put your money into a real estate investment trust, right? The return might be 4%, it might be 6% and that might be a top return uh, of a secured commercial building. In this instance, every deal is different cosmetic renos, the rules are different, structural renos, the rules are different, um, small subdivisions, large subdivisions, each of those has its different nuances and boundaries and um, variations on return on investment. So it is a journey and I think you know, if people are going to do this and they're going to get joint venture partners, they the other tip I'm going to put in there is definitely get written agreements whether you're doing unit trusts or joint ventures or profit shares or first mortgages is that yeah make sure you get written agreements um, i really suggest that people get a good team um, and and start to investigate what what kind of um, strategies and opportunities that their consultants are really involved in you know, if you're using a finance broker or a solicitor account you really want them to be active in property as well uh, simply because it one they're very um familiar with it it's fresh for them they can access the documents straight away but also they can uh, their experience is not just superficial uh, their money is on the line they're dealing with problems like tenancies breaking their agreements or land tax problems or joint ventures going wrong or interest rates going up so they're very very sensitive to it and they're able to uh, help you on your journeys
0: Coming up on the next episode of the Think Big Property Podcast is we'll be diving further into money rules.
1: I think that comes back to what people want out of a deal. I think that's really important is do you want cash flow? Do you want capital growth? Do you want both?
0: Why you need to be able to trust your partners within a deal?
1: I think... The questions that I've raised there of who you're comfortable dealing with came from a time when I was having some struggles in my business relationship.
0: So, the business models that Nyung has tried to emulate
1: it took me a few years to figure out that strategy. Uh, I'll give you a couple of models that I've duplicated or copied off.
0: And that's next time on the Think Big Property Podcast. Hey. Before you go, want to learn how Nyang made over $215,000 from subdividing a thousand square meter block into five lots? Many told him there were no good deals left in this suburb but $215,000 profit in 12 months proved them wrong. When you head over to thinkbigproperty.com and subscribe, you'll get access to the video that shows you where to find them, how to get them approved and how to profit from them in even overpriced suburbs. This video shows you everything. Simply visit thinkbigproperty.com to watch it now.